Welcome to today's VJ Hemonc podcast. In today's podcast, leading experts in the field of multiple myeloma, Nupur Raji, Nina Shah, Yi Lin, and Katja Weisel discuss the most exciting updates in the field of multiple myeloma as presented at the EHAR and ASCO 2021 meetings, as well as reviewing data from key clinical trials and research on novel agents and CAR-T therapies. Welcome to the myeloma session from BJ Hemank. Um, it is my great pleasure to welcome a fantastic panel for a discussion on the recently concluded ASCO and EHA meetings. We're going to be talking all myeloma from new diagnosis to some of the new and exciting things we have in the myeloma space. And to discuss all of this, I have the pleasure of inviting uh, Dr. Katja Weissel. She's the Deputy Director of Hemonc at the Comprehensive Cancer Center in the University Medical Center in Hamburg. I'm also joined by Professor Nina Shah, who is from UCSF. And we are very fortunate to have uh, Dr. Yilin from the Mayo Clinic, who is a superstar when it comes to uh, CAR T-cell therapy and some of our new immune oncology strategies. Strategies. So with that, welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Again, I think it's fantastic that we have an all-women powerhouse out here. So let's get started. Um, you know, we had a... Um, sort of interesting presentations at uh, ASCO as well as at EHA. We started out by, um, you know, there was, I'm going to go because I want to try and do it in some sort of an order. So we want to talk about the newly diagnosed. So I'm going to jump between ASCO and EHA, if that's okay with you ladies. Uh, but I did want to start out by talking about Maya. Uh, because Maya is a clinical trial, which is going to be practice changing. And it was a late breaker at EHA. And uh, Professor Thierry Facon presented the updated results of Maya, which is the triplet of lenalidomide dexamethasone with deratumumab when compared to lenalidomide dexamethasone. And we saw an overall survival data, which was presented at this uh, um, EHA meeting. Um, so, uh, you know, I just wanted to get a thoughts around this clinical trial, and I'm going to start out with you, Katya. You want to talk a little bit about this because it is really going to impact how you take care of folks, certainly in the EU areas. Yeah, I think Maya is a fantastic trial and um, is continuing the series of plenary talks Thierry had starting with Lendex establishing as a standard treatment with the first trial, which was huge with more than six, uh, 1,600 patients. And now Maya again, uh, a large phase three trial investigating deratumumab in combination with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. And then the uh, first standard arm serving here uh, as a standard Lendex. And uh, patients um, were really um, included um, as an all-comer um, trial when they were newly diagnosed and transplant ineligible. And how I think investigators trust in this um, tolerability of this regimen showed that nearly half of the patients were 75 years and older. So uh, representing a true elderly uh, population. 
And we saw those outstanding uh, PFS data, but this year then the overall survival data and what was for me um, very surprising that the median PFS for Daryl Index was still not reached and is estimated uh, like beyond 55 months somewhere. And that there was, uh, despite all the innovation we have in myeloma, a clear and significant overall survival benefit. So for me, and now with the ability to give Dara Subcube in most of the countries, uh, this is the clear and undoubtable standard for most of the transplant ineligible patients. Yeah, no, I think you bring up such a good point, specifically with the subcutaneous DARA now, which is available to us, Fatia. This is sort of our go-to regimen. I know in the EU, you were using RVD in the upfront setting for this patient population. Does this Maya trial now mean that you will be transitioning to uh, DARA RD-based regimen, certainly in the non-transplant uh, eligible patients? Absolutely. I think we switch in the majority of patients. There might remain some patients with renal impairment or at high risk where you consider to put the proteasome inhibitor in. However, with this data, I think um, the majority of patients will switch to the standard. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for that. So, Nina, I'm just going to switch uh, gears and come to you here. Uh, you know, we've clearly made a lot of progress in the non-transplant uh, eligible patients. The Maya data is obviously unprecedented data that we've seen with survivals as high where we haven't yet reached the medians. Uh, we in the U.S. have been using RVD light in this patient population. Would you have any preferences between RVD light light versus going to DARA RD based on what you're seeing with Maya? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And uh, thank you for having me on this panel. I really actually think the Maya data, first of all, when it was initially presented, was actually practiced moving and most recently has been practiced changing. And I think this data with the overall survival makes a lot of us feel like we'll move in that direction for transplant ineligible. I'll speak for myself that I have really moved to that as a regimen for the transplant ineligible because I was actually very happy to see that many of the patients were above 75. And I think that's truly some of those patients were probably transplant ineligible, uh, which has mirrored some of our practice. Um, and in addition, I think that I worry about neuropathy, although weekly bortezomib does decrease that. I worry about any neuropathy in these patients who are older with comorbidities and also maybe having decreased performance status. So I like to avoid that as much as possible. And certainly subcutaneous daratumumab has made this easier. And then when the schedule gets monthly, it's easier. So that's also a quality of life issue. So I'm excited to see this data. I do like to see things that change practice in myeloma because we always want to do better for our patients. So talking about changing practice, we're going to move now to the transplant eligible patient population. And I'm not sure that this is necessarily going to change practice, but it's certainly a lot of, uh, you know, we are going to be talking about this. We saw in the transplant eligible patient population updated data from Forte. And what the data there showed was the trial in itself was KCD versus KRD, uh, continuous versus 
versus KRD with a transplant. And the interesting thing to me in this transplant eligible patient population was a high proportion of these patients were high risk, albeit they had been defined in a slightly different way. It's not the conventional way which you and I are used to defining high-risk disease. And what was interesting to me also was a second randomization wherein they randomized patients to what we refer to as standard of care, which is lenalidomide maintenance versus the combination of lenalidomide and um, uh, carfilzomib maintenance in that second randomization. Um, so, uh, Yi, do you want to speak a little bit about some of the advances we've made and what you think about using a triplet such as KRD, specifically in the high-risk patient population, which is transplant eligible? Absolutely. So I think, you know, this is still an area of unmet needs where uh, we're seeing that these patients can blow through treatments very quickly. Um, they may have initial response, but very short duration of response or a short PFS. And we're quickly going through the um, backbones of myeloma therapies, if you will. And so um, I do think that the data from the 4K trial is speaking to the um, conventional practice in that with these patients, uh, with these risk features, uh, although yes, you can define you know, mutational risk features versus let's say certain biologic risk features, but to um, intensify the treatment upfront, use the most effective regimen upfront, we, uh, we do see differences in, in response rate uh, between the arms um, uh, on this study. Uh, now, um, I, I think we, uh, I would like to see longer follow-up as well to see if what is the exact right triplet combination to truly make a difference uh, in, in the long-term in terms of, you know, um, keeping that PFS. And I think there's, with the emerging data too, it's a quadruplet um, that may also uh, make us think, well, what's the effective proteasome inhibitor plus, let's say, the, the image uh, or maybe cell mods coming down, but plus an antibody um, therapy. I think this is where the data is, is pushing for high risk upfront uh, in, in multiple myeloma patients. So it's almost like you're reading my mind out here. <laughs> Perfect segue into uh, the Casapia trial, which essentially is a four drug combination. And what uh, the Casapia data, again, is something we saw for the first time here. This is obviously a combination of DERA with VTD, so bortezomib, thalidomide, dexamethasone with deratumumab up front compared to VTD alone. There was a crossover allowed, and you saw a longer follow-up um, of this uh, data set, and it kind of speaks to a little bit of what we do in the maintenance setting as well. So Katya, I'm going to come to you because, you know, in the U.S., we don't necessarily use VTD the way it's used in the Casapia trial. But just your mm -hmm. thoughts on what Philippe Moreau presented at this year's ASCO and EHA, and then we can talk about how it really impacts practice as well going forward. Yeah, thank you. I think uh, Cassiopeia is a very... Um, special trial, but it gives us in many aspects 
a lot of insight we can translate, even if we don't use it in daily clinical practice like it was exactly in the trial. For us in Europe, Dara VTD is now the only possibility to give a quadruplet and in the approved label. So we have no other chance to applicate the quadruplet in t uh, transplant eligible patients. And um, what we now saw, um, to my opinion, was very interesting how important um, the anti-CD38 strategy is to add right up front in the initial cycle and combining it with the PI-image combination. Um, because when we saw uh, that in the um, VTD arm, uh, a significant proportion of patients didn't make it to the second randomization in the Cassiopeia trial, randomizing then DARA maintenance versus no maintenance, and saw the poor outcome of those patients, we again see confirmed how important it is um, to go um, very broad in right from the beginning. The other thing I found personally very interesting was that um, those patients having had DARA in the induction and consolidation for six cycles and did not have a maintenance had in this follow-up um, a comparable outcome to those who had DARA in front end in maintenance. That might um, separate when we have a longer follow-up, absolutely. However, for me, it, it showed again, you need it right from up front. And then you can discuss what you do later. Um, and so for me, this was the clear confirmation uh, towards quadruplet in front, especially uh, for patients at risk. And uh, for maintenance, I think we have to say those patients received in this trial only 12 DARA administrations in maintenance. So every eight weeks for two years. Um, looking on the FOFTA study, we just saw combining maintenance, LAN and carfilzomib. I think here for the impact of daratumumab in maintenance, we have to see the data of the combination trials of LAN-DARA combination, and they will come out next year, I'm sure. No, I think you bring about so many important points, you know, whether or not the Casapia data can really be looked at upon as a maintenance data set is something we have to really wait on. You talked about the dose intensity, Katya, which is so important and sort of gets forgotten about. Uh, so thank you for bringing that to uh, everybody's attention. But just pushing you a little bit, Nina, because we've all uh, joined the bandwagon of using quadruplets now, more is is, uh, you know, the way things are uh, panning out as more seems to be always better. But in your mind, has the Casapia trial taught us anything specifically with what Katya uh, referred to? You know, you are seeing four drugs and do we need to continue them or is there room to kind of tailor therapy a little bit? Yeah, I think there were some important points that we learned from Casapea. One, um, that if you're going to have nothing go on after transplant, that's not a good idea. People need something. So uh, some kind of maintenance is, is better than nothing. And I think we knew that. We, we tend to give maintenance. But but I think that um, 
as far as what it, it made me feel better, because a lot of people are doing the Dara RVD, for example, induction therapy in the US, but they're not continuing the daratumumab in the maintenance setting. Instead, they're doing lenalidomide maintenance alone, which is standard of care. And in a way that's good because you're not giving Dara for 32 cycles like we did in Griffin. Um, and, and I felt better about that after seeing the Cassiopeia data that the benefit of the daratumumab was fine if you just gave it up front and didn't necessarily give it afterwards. So, and I get that the control arm is not the same, you know, it's not lenalidomide, but it's observation. Uh, but I think this does give a little justification if we have to sort of uh, slice trials and take parts of it to help us in practical management that we can give daratumumab upfront as a quad um, and not necessarily continue it for all 32 cycles, which then allows us to use it later because the person would technically not be daratumumab refractory. Absolutely. I think once you start using combinations like we do, you know, in addition to the efficacy, and we're seeing really high efficacy where we're seeing MRD negative disease, I do think we have to pay attention to toxicity. And the Casapia data certainly informs us of the possibility of us being able to attenuate treatment, at least in the subset of patients, which is again a nice way of leading into maintenance strategies for myeloma. You've alluded to that, Nina right now in terms of talking about uh, lens maintenance. Katya, you've talked about some of the new trials which are coming down the pike where we are comparing lenalidomide to lenalidomide and uh, daratumumab, for example, and we'll see who are the ones who are going to benefit from the doublet. Having said that, I just want to go back to the Forte trial because the second randomization did include carfilzomib and lenalidomide, and what you found in the different risk categories is that everybody benefits. And in fact, this is something which I really have been saying for a long time is, you know, we focus in on the high risk patients, but it's the standard risk patients who actually do the best with whatever is the best option out there. So based on some of the data which was presented at Forte, do you all think you will adopt the use of a dual maintenance? Would you consider using a prodisome inhibitor and lenalidomide as dual maintenance in everybody or or should we be reserving it for mostly the high-risk patients uh, as of right now? So in my mind, as you already pointed out, Newport, is that the standard risk patient do very well with a number of treatments that we already have. And so for this patient population, I think more about tolerability of the maintenance treatment, um, toxicity, as uh, that's already been uh, brought up, quality of life. Um, so this is not necessarily the population uh, until I see more convincing data, let's say from you know large randomized trial with sufficient follow-up. Uh, I'm not anxious to right now in, in my standard of care clinic to add anything beyond, let's say, you know, lenalidomide. Um, but the high-risk population is definitely a space where we say, gosh, you know, what we've been doing clearly hasn't made a difference. Uh, we know proteasome inhibitor makes a difference. And so that is something that, you know, even in my own practice, that a proteasome-based 
maintenance is uh, what I'm using. I, I am also thinking in that space, you know, is there a role to add uh, deratumumab in that setting? But for sure, uh, you know, some type of doublet uh, in this space. And um, I think, you know, this is, this is for me, the space where I'm, I'm looking at these data very carefully and probably uh, more readily to make a change to, to the practice. Yeah, I think I think most of us would agree uh, that we're all using lenalidomide maintenance. I think what was nicely shown at this year's meetings was also sort of long follow-up. In this case, it was on the Tumulin trials where they used uh, exacerbated maintenance. And we may have a tool in the future wherein we are using minimal residual disease testing. And what that trial essentially showed was that if you were able to have sustained MRD negativity, uh, that the outcomes of that was really better and that it didn't matter how you got to that point. Like there were patients who did not even get maintenance and were MRD negative over a sustained period, which was a one year apart, uh, your outcomes were good. So rather than, like you said, jumping on the bandwagon of treating everybody with two and three drugs, I do think we're going to have uh, tools to better identify this. And just speaking to some of the tools, Nina, you know, there's a lot of data which was presented on, um, this time we have, we obviously have next-gen sequencing, we have the next-gen flow, a mass spec was presented a little bit at this year's uh, meetings, and even single cell sort of uh, uh, follow-up for looking for MRD was presented using peripheral blood samples. Uh, so in your mind, just you know, forget the type of test here, but talk about MRD in general terms. Where do you think it sits? And do you use it in practice? And if you do, well, which patients would you consider using MRD testing in? Yeah, I think MRD is probably one of the most controversial topics that myeloma doctors talk about um, and because we all love to know data, right? We all love ourselves some data. So in my mind, MRD is another piece of data. It's another piece of data on disease burden. And even if you told me a person was MRD negative 10 to the minus nine, I would still think that that person has disease somewhere. I just can't find it. Um, and so what that helps me to do is understand how the patient's going to do. In almost every trial that's been reported and MRD analyses therein, all the people that are MRD negative at whatever measure it is do better than the ones who are MRD positive. And for that reason, I like to get the MRD test. So I kind of know where people are amongst my practice, but I'm not ready to make clinical decisions on it yet. Um, although getting more information in our practice, putting our data together, sharing data amongst institutions actually helps us to understand the value of it better so that we can do clinical trials, which have MRD based decision-making and study this. And also so that we can go to the authorities and say, maybe sustained MRD negativity is the way to go to power a clinical trial to get an answer sooner than five years, uh, which is too long for me to wait. Absolutely. I think uh, the other piece which you didn't touch on is testing MRD on everybody. It's the anxiety management that you have to do with all of your patients. You're going to have a separate clinic for that, but that's for a different discussion altogether. I do think MRD testing is going to be a huge tool in the future, specifically when we have so many uh, options and allowing that's going to allow us to tailor therapy. We're not quite there as yet, uh, as you pointed out, Nina. So I want to move quickly 
to uh, the more exciting parts. This is all exciting. This is fantastic. It's really changed the landscape of myeloma. And we're beginning to see our first relapsed patient four and five years down the road, which is absolutely remarkable. Um, and we found that there was exciting data in the relapse refractory space as well. I'm going to leave the immunotherapies for a little bit later, and I'm going to talk about some of the newer things which were presented, and I'd love to get your insights. I'm going to start with you, Katya, on iberdomide. It is sort of an immune-based strategy. It's a new novel cell mod, and we saw some combinations. Uh, Dr. Lonial presented this at this year's EHA. Your thoughts, your ideas, do, do you know where it's going to fit in the lenalidomide, pomalidomide paradigm? Yeah, this is an absolutely interesting drug, and um, I think uh, we have now entered there also a new generation of immunomodulation. Uh, we are more specific, and we have less toxicity, and this is what we want to have. And it seems that we can um, even more specifically target that, what we want to target. And um, from... For me, those data and the combination data were very strong, they were very consistent. And for us, it's also important to have easy to applicate regimens, easy to use regimens um, with a low toxicity. So seeing in parallel the emerging data from uh, CC480, I personally think that um, both um, may as substitute LAN and POM, uh, Ivadomide probably LAN and CC480 probably POM, if it turns out that they are more, po more potent and potentially even better to tolerate. So I think very important um, results for, for our future. It's early data, but it's promise uh, nonetheless, and you know more options for our patients. And like you pointed out, Katya, these are drugs which are easy to combine with some of our backbone drugs, uh, so that obviously we are already familiar with years worth of experience of using these immunomodulatory drugs. So certainly a great addition. Um, obviously, the excitement over the last several years has been everything BCMA. You know that we all. Uh, saw really great data with Idacel. We now have Idacel, which is FDA approved. And I just heard this morning, it's actually approved in the EU as well. And you guys have a better indication than even we do uh, in the EU where you have three lines of treatment and your last line has to be refractory. You don't even need four lines. But what was exciting and interesting in this year's ASCO and EHA meetings was the Siltacel uh, data. So Siltacel is the other CAR T-cell drug product, which was presented by Dr. Osmani. Uh, he, can you speak to CARTITUDE 1, the efficacy we've seen, and uh, what you think of the data thus far? Absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. I think, you know, it's interesting in multiple myeloma that um, we have a lot of DCMA targeting CAR-T trials. And unlike uh, what, what started with CD19 CAR-T in the lymphoma leukemia space, 
where the external portion of the car, uh, the epitope that's targeting 319 was pretty much the same for a lot of the, the, the product. Here, we do have differences across the design of the car and that may play into, um, you know, what we uh, could be seeing both with the, these more mature product and, and what's coming down the pike uh, for investigation. But I'm certainly very, very excited about this cell to cell uh, updated results presented from Cartitude 1. This is again, a very heavily pretreated patient population, medium prior lines of therapy six, so high numbers of um, triple even pentarefractory patients, extramedullary disease. Um, and what we've seen so far overall, um, just generally in, in the CAR-T, how we think about CAR-T toxicity too, that this is in the, the milder spectrum of toxicity, the more severe type of cytokine release syndrome or neurotoxicity associated with cytokine release syndrome, the type where we think patient may need to go to ICU level monitoring and care, that is down in single digit percentage. So that's very encouraging to see, especially as we think about this is a patient population who are older, you know, by the time they, they're in that relapse refractory setting. And what's really exciting to see is that um, this stringent CR rate with cell to cell and cartitude one is 80%. I mean, that is really, really impressive, um, including MRD uh, negative rate as we were touching on. But uh, although, you know, I think we have a lot to learn about um, how to interpret MRD as well in immunotherapy space. Um, but um, what's also really exciting is we, we now have slightly longer follow-up as well on this study, 18 months. And, you know, we're seeing really encouraging PFS rate, you know, 66% um, overall survival rate. Also, you know, very high medium uh, PFS OS not yet reached on this study. So I'm very, very excited um, to see this product. I know the BLA is being submitted uh, for regulatory review. Absolutely. I think we saw fantastic data. We've seen a 22-month PFS now with the Siltacell uh, uh, drug product. We've never seen such fantastic results in such a heavily pretreated uh, patient population. So a lot of room for excitement. But along with that, you know, there was a cautionary tale with Cartitude 1 as well. And we did see some sort of delayed neurotoxicity. So not the classic ICANS that we uh, think about or the C we think about uh, they reported, I think, somewhere between 10 and 12 percent of a delayed neurotoxicity. And based on that, they had another presentation on Cartitude 2 with some of their patient management strategies to try and address the sort of delayed neurotoxicity, which was seen with Cartitude 1. Um, so, Nina, you've seen that data. Uh, the follow up is really not that short. You know, we they have a five and a half month follow-up. It's a smaller patient population. But do you want to speak a little bit to what was seen in Cartitude 1 with neurotoxicity and what the potential sort of mitigation strategies, so to speak, are for this uh, uh, cell drug product? Yeah, I think that this analysis of toxicity is important because these are, this is going to 
help us decide to give what product to whom. Uh, in the CARTITUDE 1 data, they had uh, 20% of patients um, have some sort of neurotoxicity, of which 16.5% had ICANs, but 12.5%, and there was some overlap there, had this alternative neurotoxicity, this delayed, sometimes neurocognitive or peripheral neuropathy, of which one patient did pass away. So this was a small signal, but it was a signal that was there. And I, I, I think there are some subtle differences between the BCMA products and there may, we think it's possible there's some BCMA-like or BCMA expression in some of the neuro tissues, potentially basal ganglia, and we don't know. But what was very reassuring uh, was that based on the CARTITUDE 2 data that was presented and Dr. Usmani's and um, subsequent dis discussion uh, about the CARTITUDE 1 data, there have been no additional scary neuro signals in the CARTITUDE 1 patients, so nothing else new, and nothing really that um, irreversible or, or detrimental in the rest of the CARTITUDE program, which is, as you know, they're studying this in other disease uh, times. So this was actually reassuring to me, and one of the things they may be able to pull out as a potential factor in this is disease burden. So if we know that, and it's hard to know because when you have 12 patients having this out of 100, you really can't tell exactly what the disease factor was, but it may be that the disease burden may be allowed the T-cell expansion to be more and potentially have this off-target effect, we don't know. But that does inform me because if we decide to take this to standard of care and we're choosing, I might want to have a disease reduction um, step before I take the person to get this particular cell-to-cell product just to decrease the chance of this um, alternative neurotoxicity, if you will. So key to bridging therapy, like you pointed out, Nina, also early treatment of CRS and neurotoxicity is important so we don't allow that to progress. I think in the early days of CAR T-cells, all of us were concerned about even giving a single dose of dexamethasone. And we've learned along the way, as we do with all drug products, you know, we are still learning how best to give, for example, uh, Selenexor, and we're doing weekly dosing. Bortezomib was approved in 1993, but we still went to weekly more recently. So I think uh, the beauty is we have all of these. Then over the course of uh, our practice, we start adapting and adopting different ways of giving uh, treatment. Similarly, you know, I just want to quickly touch on some of the other exciting immunomodulatory approaches, and these are bispecific T-cell engagers. We saw a lot of great data. We saw data on L-ranatumab, I should know how to say that, and we also saw data on teclistimab. Both of these are bispecific T-cell engagers, both of them targeting the same BCMA target that we've seen with CAR T-cells. So Katya, just your early impressions on bispecific T-cell engagers and a little bit on where do you think they fit in the whole treatment paradigm? Yeah, thank you. This is an exciting question. And I think it's a bit mirroring what we saw with CAR-Chi. So we have um, different constructs targeting BCMA, and we also learned that they have different, slightly different toxicities. The RANA-TAMAP trials were shortly on hold due to an unclear um, neurotoxicity, which was not described for teclistamab, for example, but are now moving on again. I think both um, constructs showed um, exciting data, solid data on response. 
cross-trial comparisons are very, very complicated and one should not do it. But it seems that the depth of response and the overall response rate might be slightly less than with CAR T, especially cell, where the response were deepened over time. Um, however, for example, teclistamab is um, very kind of easy to use within sub-Q application. So after the step-up dosing every two weeks. So I think this might absolutely um, enrich our armamentarium. And uh, those are again, potentially drugs um, where you can combine or where you in, in the future perspective could go in, uh, in patients turning MRD positive like we do in acute leukemia. So I think they have to find their role, their place, and they are different, but they are great gift also um, to move forward in myeloma. You're absolutely right. You know, we have something which is off the shelf, as you pointed out, with uh, providing really deep responses. We have this wherein there is no waiting time to actually give it to patients. We don't have the four to five weeks of a turnaround time. So if, I, if you had all of these tools in your toolkit, uh, you were allowed to use a bispecific, you were allowed to use CAR T cells. Can you imagine a scenario where if you, if it was your choice, what would you want to do? Uh, would you want to sequence them? Would you want to combine them? One, which one before? This is just hypothetical, uh, but what would you think about doing here? I think sequencing is definitely a trickier question that we will learn more of having BCMA, ABC, and CAR-T already in practice uh, and more that will come. And then we anticipate also by specific uh, in the space as well. We're seeing some emerging data, very limited early data on trials that are now allowing prior BCMA exposures of maybe a different modality of treatment. And, you know, we can see response there sometime, uh, but not enough of a, a sample size to really understand um, the impact, and particularly if, if we're thinking about immediate sequencing, uh, we know a little bit about BCMA uh, expressions, amount of expression that can change at the time of, of progression, um, and we need to understand how that may impact you know, the selection of subsequent therapy. But at least in terms of right now, where we may still have patients that are, let's say, BCMA therapy naive, how I would think about uh, the, the, the therapy selection for patients. Um, certainly, uh, CAR-T right now is, is limited to centers that um, have to go through certification uh, and accreditation process in order to give it. And so uh, travel logistics, uh, having uh, requiring higher level of caretaker support may potentially be restrictive to some patients. Um, CAR-T for the most part are given um, with some type of lymphodepletion chemotherapy and with the myeloma one, a CAR-T investigation more commonly with cyclophosphamide and fludarabine. And that can have impact too in terms of recovery, cytokinia's risk for in infection on top of just the, the CAR-T alone. And so that um, the, the, the patient's performance status, comorbidities um, may come into consideration in terms of that, that CAR-T consideration. However, 
um, the eligibility for CAR-T isn't necessarily the same for stem cell transplant. So there may be some patients that I typically wouldn't think about for a transplant. Granted, I know we typically use that you know, a, little, a little bit earlier than the FDA approved indication for CAR-T, but just strictly thinking about patient selection criteria um, that, I, that I may consider that they could tolerate the toxicities of, uh, of cytokine release syndrome, neurotoxicity. I can support them through count recovery, uh, and I would consider them for CAR-T. And for, for those type of patients uh, are the ones where I think about um, they, th those that could benefit from the one and done, right? Right now, the CAR-Ts are investigated as a, a one-time dosing, no maintenance therapy. Um, uh, granted, I know we have the investigation where we talk about is there value, you know, to adding that, but currently it's one time done. And for the patients who do respond to CAR-T, the quality of life of not now not being tied to any chemotherapy unit for any maintenance therapies um, is huge. It's huge, right? Even though they, they know it's, it's an outpatient thing that they can do, but they notice I've had patients that tell me once they're done with CAR-T and are, you know, in that recovery phase, not on maintenance therapy of any kind, that it's the best they felt. They felt almost like before they even had the myeloma diagnosis. Um, so I think that, that is not a, a trivial factor in, in considering which patient might benefit from CAR-T. Absolutely. You know, this has been such a fantastic discussion. And um, I think it's such an exciting time to be in myeloma research and to be able to have all of these things available to our patients. We can really start beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, in the old days, you used to be worried about saying we do have a curative platform. I think now we are bolder and braver because it's around the corner. It's a question of time, how long we follow. So I want to thank all of you for joining me in this panel discussion. This was a really fantastic discussion. Thank you so much for being there and thank you all for listening in. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. Follow us on Twitter at BJ Hemok to share your thoughts on the topics discussed. Visit VJHemonk.com for cutting-edge updates from our leading experts, as well as exclusive coverage of all of the latest news in the field of myeloma. Be sure to subscribe to VJHemonk Podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean.